Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. An episode that I've been looking forward to for a while has a lot of contemporary value as I'm talking with Susan Boyd, a distinguished professor from the University of Victoria, about her new book, Heroin, an illustrated history in which Susan goes through the history of heroin in Canada from its discovery in the late 19th century through the 20th century from being a prescription drug used for pain to its criminalization through to the social and cultural demonization of not just the drug, but those certainly who used the drug as well and the damage that was done to those individuals, as well as debates over the best way to address these issues, the way in which legislation governing heroin and other drugs for that matter are part of a larger process of colonialization, who gets prosecuted for heroin use compared to those who don't, uh, the inequalities within that system, and leading into questions that are very relevant today in terms of debates over safe consumption sites and strategies to reduce overdose and to reduce the harm that is done to those who are using these drugs. And these are debates that are going on across the country and I think have only increased over the last couple of years. And this book provides a very valuable, very important contextual history to the contemporary discussions. And it's presented in a way that is different that you might expect. Susan's not a historian by training, certainly has a lot of background in this area. But as a result, the, the book is presented a different way, particularly with the use of images. There's, there's a lot of really powerful imagery in this book that is used very effectively. So if you're looking for a really good contextual understanding of drug legislation, drug policy, the social cultural place of drugs and drug use in Canada to make sense of some of the discussions and debates that are happening today. Certainly would recommend this one to you. So as I say, this was one I was very much looking forward to. It's not an issue that I am certainly an expert in by any means. I have tried my best to learn more and more about this. As I say in the show, a lot of my conceptions of issues surrounding drug use really take me back to when I was in middle school and dare and some of the messages that come out of that. We talk about that in the show, the damage that's done through certain messaging that comes out of those programs as well as from governments and law enforcement. So uh, a lot of issues at play here. Uh, really enjoyed the opportunity to talk with Susan. So without any further ado, let's get right into my chat with Susan Boyd. All right. And Susan Boyd joins me now from Victoria, British Columbia. I assume that you're in Victoria, Susan, are you? No, I'm actually in uh, Vancouver. I live in Vancouver. Okay, in but Vancouver. I was, uh, faculty at University of Victoria. Yes, you are a, a distinguished professor uh, is your status there still. So uh, that's uh, very exciting. Yes. So thank you very much for joining me from out west today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Terrific. And uh, here to talk about Heroin and Illustrated History, your new book from our friends over at Fernwood Press. So, Susan, before we get into some of the specifics of the book, could you walk us through a little bit of your background, right? We have a lot of 
historians on the show. You're there. You've done a lot of interdisciplinary work. Uh, so what has your career been to get you to a point where you're writing uh, this, this book about the history of heroin? Well, my background's in criminology and women's studies and sort of sociological uh, perspectives on crime. And my first research uh, that I conducted was doing interviews with women who used criminalized drugs, mothers, because I felt like their voice wasn't heard in the academic literature. And in order to understand sort of where we are, where we were then, I looked at the history of drug control, um, as well as looking at the regulation of women through child protection and social services and through the healthcare system. So I'm not a historian per se, um, but I felt that I needed to understand better the setting that current things occurred in. And from there, I went on to write several other books. And in those books, I talked about drug issues more in a socio-historical um, framework, I think you could say. I've just always been interested in, um, as many other uh, writers are, how the past shapes or affects our present day and our future, um, trying to understand what's going on in contemporary society by looking to the past. And with my books, I started to move um, as well providing imagery in the books, in a book that I did with Bud Osborne, who is a, a renowned poet in the downtown east side and activist, and Donald McPherson. We authored the book, Raise Shit. And in that book, we included imagery from the downtown east side and different events in relation to the history of the harm reduction movement um, in Vancouver at that time. And I started to look at imagery quite different because I've done a study on uh, drug films, looking at fictional drug films, Canadian, U.S. films, and from the U.K. as well, analyzing sort of the narratives, but also the visual imagery in those films. And more and more, I started to uh, recognize that images are telling a story as well. And when that image was created, it tells a story from that moment in history, too. So in my last two books, um, I wrote Busted, an Illustrated History of Drug Prohibition in Canada. In that book, I used images and text, again, to tell the story of the history of drug prohibition. In my most current book, Heroin, an Illustrated History, I'm utilizing the same framework in the sense of going back to historical documents, trying to understand our present day, how we've regulated heroin, how we see people who use heroin, but also using the imagery, whether it be a painting or a poster or a news event, to tell the story too, and focusing on what I would call alternative narratives and imagery to tell the story. Because especially with heroin, if you look at the images, let's say in a 1950 magazine or in a current film, you know, the heroin user is most often demonized and uh, or occasionally romanticized. So I was trying to find alternative narratives because that's a story I wanted to tell after having looked at all of this uh, archival material, you know, sort of 
House of Commons debates, RCMP annual reports in the past, Department of National Health and Welfare annual reports, um, to bring those into focus with the imagery from that time as well of important events that related to heroin regulation. So I've been writing and investigating, I guess you could say, drug policy for almost 30 years. um, And I find each work, I'm trying to open it up a bit more to understand it better, to understand our current day, um, and trying to find the language to write about those events in a way that anybody could understand the book, you know, from a teenager to a senior citizen that I'm telling a story, and I'm hoping at the end of that story that they'll think differently about the issues that I've brought up in the book. You know, you certainly see it in this book, the the connection to today and, and the accessibility of it, certainly. And for something like heroin, that it, it makes sense, you know, on the surface, you might say like an illustrated history of heroin, what could you actually put? But then you, you look in, in the book and you look at what's there. There's so much there from the early days from its advertisements, from its benefits, and then, mm-hmm. of course, into the criminalization of it and the war on drugs and all the imagery that comes out in the war on drugs. There is a lot there that allows the book to speak to you in different ways and different levels. Uh, and of course, mm-hmm. it does speak to contemporary issues as well as certainly heroin hasn't gone away from society. And a lot of the issues here mirror other issues with drug use and the criminalization of certain drugs. But let's let's go back to its discovery, because really heroin is very much a 20th century drug. Uh, it, it's discovered in the late 1890s, and it's put into use for medical purposes early on. And first of all, for anyone who doesn't know, what exactly is heroin? And second, what were the medical benefits or perceived medical, medical benefits when it was first introduced around the turn of the century? I should say that right up into the 1800s, all drugs were plant-based. Today, our drugs are mostly synthetic, and you know it's a chemist who's um, discovering the drugs. But prior to that, plants were plant medicines were what Canadians and other people around the world used to take care of their health and their family's health. But heroin in itself was discovered in um, 1874. It's what we call a semi-synthetic drug. And it's derived from morphine, the compound morphine, which is a compound um, in the opium poppy plant. To morphine, you um, add acidic acid and it creates heroin. So if you look at the chemical composition of the two drugs, they're very similar. Diacetylmorphine is the name of the drug, um, but Bayer Company advertised or marketed the the drug and branded it heroin. And so it was advertised for pain relief and as a cough suppressant. Um, And it was seen as quite beneficial because you could use a smaller dose for the same effect you know, so a smaller dose of heroin that you, or uh, in comparison to morphine, for the same effect. But it was never um, applied to the many, many ailments that people use. Let's say an opium-based medicine. It was literally just pain relief and as a cough suppressant. So it wasn't as popular as an opium-based medicine at all. But at that time, um, in the late 1800s. 
if you opened up a medical journal, you might see uh, advertisement by Bayer's about this drug and its effectiveness. So the demonization came much, much later. And I think what's interesting about heroin is that right up until the mid-1950s, physicians in Canada prescribed heroin to patients. What got criminalized was the non-medical use of heroin and other drugs like morphine, um, because we use morphine and heroin and other drugs legally, you know, safe legal supplies of that are used in pain management and the management of other illnesses. But in Canada, a ban was placed on the importation of heroin into Canada. And so that literally just dried up the domestic supply. And so physicians could no longer prescribe it. But in the early 1920s, the Narcotic Division of the federal government criminalized the prescribing of legal heroin to anyone who was labeled a known addict. So we criminalized using that drug for people who might be dependent on a narcotic. And what interests me about that is that after we criminalized a long string of drugs, we didn't set up any publicly funded drug treatment or drug substitution programs as other countries did. It kind of speaks to a lot of what you see with potentially other drugs. You mentioned uh, opium and the prosecution of opium and opium dens across the country. Yes. Uh, you know, in the, the 19th century, that was a, a major issue that took up a lot of, of oxygen in, in the discussion in Ottawa around yes. these issues. But when we get into the 1920s and 1930s, as it relates to heroin, was the harm of heroin, the addictiveness to people mm-hmm. who, who, of course, were addicts uh, to heroin, was the issue kind of like what we see now over-prescribing, where doctors are, are starting to become reliant on this as a form of treatment? Or similarly, was there the, the quote-unquote street market that you may see now, where illicit heroin was being bought and sold uh, outside of any regulatory realm? No, there wasn't. Um, to start off with, people who were using drugs illicitly in Canada were always a very small portion of the population. We never had like a drug panic that was um, informing our laws. Though, you know, on contemporary news, we've certainly been introduced to this idea of whether it be uh, marijuana grow up, you know, drug panic or a methamphetamine drug panic or crack cocaine drug panic. But it's never been to the extent that the media or law enforcement has suggested. But with heroin itself, legal heroin, there was there was no red flag or alarms coming out of Canada. It was never a very popular drug, as I said, in the same way that an opium-based drug or morphine was. Um, and even then, there were no claims of overprescribing. It was an international effort that was led by the United States and then uh, the World Health Organization, right up from the 1920s on, they wanted to have legal sources of heroin banned, you know, that doctors wouldn't be able to prescribe heroin because the U.S. believed that there was diversion into the legal market. Hmm. But there was no evidence of that. And um, in Canada, definitely, there was no evidence of that. You know, and today, from a viewpoint today, you would say, well, wouldn't that be better than buying drugs 
and a poison drug supply. Yeah. But anyway, that wasn't part of the equation at that time, but it was very much a U.S. effort to get other Western nations to ban the importation of heroin into their countries or the production of legal heroin in their countries. Because heroin becomes sort of the boogeyman of all drugs. Um, what happened after, uh, in 1908, we enacted um, our first narcotic law, and that was directed at Chinese Canadians and white people who visited opium dens and were smoking opium. So that was a concern by moral reformers at that time. Nobody cared about the copious amount of liquid opiums that sure. other Canadians were using. And because it was so few opium dens and so few people actually smoking opium, some people moved on to using more refined drugs like heroin and morphine, and for some cocaine as well, um, outside of the opium dens, which no longer existed, or right. most of them. And so we see this shift in sort of what I would call drug use patterns. And because people weren't provided uh, a legal drug substitution program, they had no legal access to these drugs, unless it was for a medical reason, an illegal drug market evolved um, because when people want something and it's not being provided for them, they will go to the legal market. Sure. So we see this growing illegal market as well at the same time. But the number of people using illegal heroin in Canada was always so quite small. You know, it wasn't even in like the 10,000, you know, it was down to like a thousand people or 500 people in the beginning. And maybe to give a good example, like, Drug convictions don't necessarily give us a mirror in any way of like how many people are using drugs, but over time you can see certain patterns in them. And when we look like even in the 1950s, we can see roughly from 300 to 370 drug convictions occurred in Canada. Well, that's so different than what we've had in like the last decade from 100,000 to like 66,000 in 2020. But of those drug convictions in the 1950s, about 90% were for personal possession convictions, and the majority of those are for heroin. Hmm. And BC always uh, sort of led the way you know, in terms of um, more convictions in our province here. But it gives you an idea. It wasn't a huge problem, but it had been built up over decades through communication by the Narcotic Division and the RCMP saw heroin as the number one threat to the nation. And their annual reports and their media communications mirrored this idea that heroin is instantly addicting, that the heroin user was a criminal addict. It was a person who was a criminal first and their use of heroin or their addiction to heroin was secondary. And so the, their thinking at that time, um, the RCMP and the Narcotic Division and some professionals espoused the idea that there's no point to give them drug treatment, even abstinence-based treatment or a drug substitution program where they could be provided legal sources of the drug because they would still remain a threat to society because they were inherently criminal. And so that was our mindset right up until the late 60s, and it continued. And, you know, I think we still have a bit of that mindset today shaping policy. 
But he got built up that way. And uh, in the United States, it was a concerted effort as well. And you have to remember that Canadians have always read U.S. publications, listened to U.S. radio, watched their films, you know, um, especially in relation to films. We didn't have and we still don't have the same type of Hollywood production um, Mm -hmm. in Canada. And so for many people where they get their ideas about the drug heroin is through fictional popular culture. And, you know, think about it. It would be very boring to show a film about a heroin user where they just get up, take either an oral dose or um, injection of their drug, see their family, go off to work, come back, maybe have another dose of their uh, drug and go to bed. You know what I mean? That's boring. So to dramatize the drug user, we use all these visual effects. I mean, you're probably familiar with them yourself, like all of a sudden that person who looked possibly well put together, you know, if it's a woman, their hair all of a sudden is out everywhere, their mascara is falling all over their face, um, they're looking scrubby. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so there's, and we're seeing images of a needle, you know, injecting oneself sure. often um, in a background that looks quite dangerous, you know, in an alley. Um, and abandoning their families, their jobs, all of those depictors of Rune. Um, and often the outcome of their heroin use is death. So that's the message we've gotten for decades about the drug. But just to counterpoint that, when you actually see people who are be receiving either heroin-assisted treatment or heroin prescribed to them, you're not seeing any of those indicators. So it begs the question, I think, is that, is it the drug or is it the years of discrimination, like moving through the criminal justice system, being arrested, spending time in prison, being discriminated against uh, through our healthcare system, through race, class, and gender injustice, and possibly child protection um, regulation. You know, what are we actually seeing? And I think when you examine or when you look at the conclusions in relation to providing legal safe heroin to individuals, that small minority of people who find that uh, conventional treatments fail them, that it's the social environment that they're living in and the discrimination that they've experienced that we're seeing. Because when people are provided legal sources of heroin. They just have a stable, normal life like anybody else. Um, Well, it kind of begs the question of if there's not that many people using it at the time when when it is being criminalized, who is using it? What what is the, the type, the average user of heroin? Because, you know, we've certainly seen in Canadian history, you mentioned opium dens. Those are pretty much targeted at Chinese Canadians and then the Chinese mm-hmm. Canadian community. We've seen laws passed in Canada that have targeted indigenous communities for mm-hmm. alcohol use, for traditional drugs. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it's not just a Canadian issue. If you look at a lot of drug laws in the United States, they're either targeted at or really only prosecuted against the African American community. So do the laws for heroin and and this fear that you're talking about being presented through the course of the 20th century, is there that racial social aspect to it that 
the laws are there essentially targeting a very specific part of the community. Laws target, they have right from the beginning, um, poor people, very visible users, so poor and working class people. And obviously there has been a a race-based component to all of our drug laws and all of our police profiling of groups. What we saw in the 50s was that law enforcement was profiling white, poor, and working class heroin users across Canada, but they were still including depictions of the racialized opium trafficker um, or heroin trafficker. So there's always a component of race. Now you would say that in relation to who's targeted, that there's been a number of studies that just uh, came out in the last couple of years concluding that there's racial profiling going on in relation to drug offenses and that Indigenous and Black people are overrepresented in those arrests, um, even though their drug use rates are similar to white Canadians. So there's always a racial component. But in the 50s, there was this fear that was generated about white heroin users. And so that got a lot of attention in the press um, because it wasn't a racialized group, even though whiteness is a racial category. And I think you could say that for many ways, the narcotic division and law enforcement, you know, they constructed this sort of boogeyman drug um, and the people who used it. And it was all tax funded. They didn't want to see a diminishing of their uh, federal and local control either. But it's not to say that uh, I, probably a good example would be this in terms of profiling. An interview that I had a couple of weeks ago, the interviewer mentioned the Rolling Stones and um, Keith Richards, who wrote a book about his life. And in that book, he writes about his heroin use. So if you think about two heroin users, you have like someone like Keith Richards, who has access to money, and someone who's poor and working class. Or working class. Um, Keith Richards can buy, or could buy back then, um, large amounts of his drug. It could be delivered to him, you know. He doesn't have to go on the street. He has people, nannies and other people to care for his family if he decides to take more than what might be recommended. He has access to good lawyers if he's arrested for heroin possession, um, who will uh, lead a great defense for him. Think about someone who's poor. If they're using heroin on a regular basis, they have to buy that drug on the street, very visible to law enforcement, small amounts each time. They have to try to generate the income to buy the drug. And they might even then use the drug in a uh, setting that's outside because if they have it in their possession, they could be stopped two blocks down and be arrested. In the 50s, 40s, 1940s, they had no access to public drug treatment, even if they wanted to stop using the drug. And they have no access to having um, a good legal defense. And at that time, you know, from 1961 on, someone who was uh, convicted with a a drug offense, including heroin, was seven years. And if they were convicted of dealing or trafficking, it was life imprisonment. And we still have those same laws today. Um, So it was very rough going for 
poor and uh, working class people in Canada. You know, prison was really the destination and was uh, enforced sobriety with no supports um, as well because we didn't have drug treatment. Um, and so it was a difficult life. And we also, the federal government set up uh, the narcotic division that actually kept files of every known drug user in Canada. And that was mostly the heroin users, cocaine users, the smaller population. And they would interfere in the prosecution of these people. They wrote letters to any doctor who prescribed them legal drugs. Yeah, so they were under high surveillance, you know, in a way that I think is difficult for a for us to understand that that continued right into the 1970s, these files of each known heroin user in Canada. So tremendous amount of effort to regulate this very small population of people. Now, you mentioned the effects of being poor and sort of what that could have on a pe- on a person in terms of where they're able to access the drug and where they're using it. And as you were speaking, I was thinking, of as we get into the 1980s, into the 1990s, how does HIV shape this? Because the idea of transmission through needles, uh, and and certainly we saw the damage that was done to the gay community in the 1980s, Mm -hmm. 1990s, the sort of oppression that was associated with the fear of HIV. How does the pandemic of HIV further influence or further marginalize those who are using heroin and perhaps even create more damage to those individuals. Yeah. I should say that there's been resistance to our drug policy since the 1940s. Um, individuals and commissions have recommended that we set up narcotic clinics, you know, our drug substitution clinics where people provided a legal dose. Um, but we've never acted on that um, mm. at all. But the 1990s, Um, really uh, signified a change because the lower mainland of Vancouver, we were experiencing public health crisis in relation to rising HIV AIDS and hepatitis C rates, but also rising overdose deaths. And those deaths were due to um, drugs purchased on the illegal market, but also in the combination of um, consuming alcohol while using other drugs. And As that crisis emerged, people got together and it would be what we would call a sort of harm reduction movement in the downtown east side of Vancouver, in the lower mainland of Vancouver, and the emergence of the first drug user union, VANDU, Vancouver Area uh, Network of Drug Users. And that really changed the way we think about drugs and the people who use drugs, because for the first time, people who were part of the union were being heard by the public. They were at the table when some decisions were being made about drug policy and the services that could be provided. Uh, Because you think about in Canada, our drug services were completely um, regulated by criminal justice. It was criminal justice or the federal government and through the narcotic division, basically telling us what kind of health services that we could have for people who used illegal drugs or other drugs. But this was the first time through the Drug User Union and the harm reduction activists that their voice got heard, and they demanded to be heard, and in a way that was very different than in the past, because when people who used heroin or other drugs 
voiced their opinion that we should legalize, you know, currently criminalized drugs, including heroin, that we should set up uh, heroin clinics. They were just dismissed, you know, as, oh, of course they want drugs, you know, um, what else would they say? Completely dismissed, even though they were providing drawing from their own life experience, a solution that would work. So we saw this shift happen due to these three things coming together, the overdose crisis then and the rising HIV AIDS and hepatitis C rates. Unfortunately, we didn't do the right thing in the 1990s. Uh, you know, uh, politicians as well, Libby Davis of the NDP at that time, uh, Van Du and others were challenging drug policy and saying, you know, we need to decriminalize. We need to move towards legal regulation of drugs. We need to set up supervised injection sites to save lives. And we need to um, expand our uh, drug substitution programs to not only be methadone maintenance clinics, which we had had emerged um, in the 1960s. So we haven't looked back since then, but we didn't roll out the recommendations that they would have liked to have seen. And even in the report uh, authored by Donald McPherson, um, the Four Pillars report, you know, recommended that we uh, seriously think about decriminalization and legal regulation, the opening of supervised injection sites, um, and the prescribing of heroin at that time. And back then, you know, when you look at it, there was probably at the, during the epidemic, you know, there was possibly 300 to 400 deaths. But last year we had over 2,000 deaths in British Columbia due to this poison drug supply. And uh, the crisis is so much larger, partially because we didn't do the right thing at that time. Though, to give them credit, harm reduction activists, drug user unions across the nation have all been clamoring and advocating for this change ever since um, and continue to do so today. And there's, you know, Kaput, our national drug user union, launched a charter challenge um, in relation to our uh, drug laws um, and uh, other groups have advocated for compassion clubs where people could come and receive safe, tested um, heroin and also methamphetamine and cocaine. Uh, and these are due to the inaction at the federal and provincial and municipal level that activists have to risk their own safety and their right. time to set up you know, services that will in some way counter the harms of drug prohibition. But you can't expect it to rest with them, you know, and that's why sure. um, advocates are also saying we need a larger change in our drug laws and our policies as well um, so that so, we can curtail this. Sure. But it, it leads to sort of this this larger question that I think shapes a lot of potentially public opinion because people look at people who are addicted to drugs and there are some pretty nonsensical arguments against say supervised sites like oh that just encourages people to use drugs which i think is, is yeah. established that that is not the case but in terms yeah. of the resistance to the laws themselves and and part of the movement I, I do feel as though there is a portion of the population that wants something punitive but yes. i would potentially argue that the, the punitive side of the law should go against manufacturers, should go against the people who push 
uh, drugs onto others. And is that a valid concern that is there, you know, the people who produce drugs, and I believe there's some sort of suit right now against large pharmaceutical companies relative, mm-hmm. uh, related to mm-hmm. the opioid uh, issues going on across North America, really across the world. Like, is, is that some sort of a hybrid legitimate solution to prosecute or, or go towards punitive towards manufacturers, the people who create the things, while mm-hmm. also providing safe spaces for those who are addicted to these substances? Yeah. What I would say about that in Canada, our um, overdose death crisis is not related to overprescribing of legal drugs. Mm-hmm. And that's very clear. And if we want to have um, better restrictions on pharmaceutical industries and uh, doctors prescribing, we can do that by creating federal law and restrictions. And the United States can too. But they don't want to create an overreaching law because, you know, they're all into the profit motive. So, you know, it's a failure of the state really to regulate the pharmaceutical industry. And they could do that at any time. Um, And so I'm not actually a big supporter of going after the pharmaceutical industry. I'm a big supporter of regulating all um, pharmaceutical industry and making sure that we're provided safe drugs and that we regulate, you know, prescribing as we do, um, but that we regulate it better uh, so that we can see if there's anomalies in prescribing. I'm very much an advocate of changing our laws and our policies that stem from these very punitive laws, because there's absolutely no evidence that punishment changes the way a person behaves, especially in relation to their drug use. So we set up this very punitive um, system through the Indian Act in 1876 that criminalized the non-medical use of alcohol and um, opioids. They called it intoxicants, um, including heroin. And that lasted for over a century. Um, But what it did was not stop people from using drugs recreationally or whatever, um, because that's what a non-medical use would be. Um, But it was a handy colonial tool to socially control indigenous people. Um, We took that same very punitive framework and applied it to our next drug law, which was in 1908, prohibiting the smoking of opium and opium dens. And the framework definitely is part of our colonial history to the present. Um, An idea of white supremacy and Christian ideology around temperance, that the ideal citizen is a white citizen who's sober and everybody else is othered. Um, Even though we don't use that language today, Mm-hmm. That is the model that we've adopted, sure. you know, possibly not understanding the tenets of it or the roots of it. This idea that abstinence is the, you know, sort of the characteristic of the ideal citizen. Um, and to use criminal justice punishment as a way to curtail people's behavior. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work in other right. crimes uh, outside of even drug use. Sure. But certainly in that area, because One of the reasons I'm opposed to the law and the policies that stem from it, too, is that, you know, for a long time, we only saw the heroin user, people who used other criminalized drugs as criminal. Mm -hmm. And then at the late 1940s and 50s, there was some movement with psychiatry to label people who were using heroin or other drugs as pathological. 
And the sort of disease model of addiction emerged as well, you know, sort of framing people who use drugs as having a disease. And now we talk about, you know, disease of the brain um, as well. And in order to receive hernia-assisted treatment or to receive hydromorphone, um, which is being used currently too in some drug substitution programs, Dilaudid, um, you have to be diagnosed as having opiate use disorder, which is in the, the criteria in the DSM. But I question this idea, how can we have a law that criminalizes people and we have the DSM telling us that people who use heroin regularly have a pathology. Right. Um, and so this contradiction, though, has been with us you know, since the ni- late 1940s and 50s. Um, but we don't seem to have a problem with that. Sure. But I would question, too, um, you know, it's been argued that seeing it through uh, the DSM or having a pathology or a disease um, will destigmatize the person who's using drugs. But we haven't seen any evidence of that in the last mm-hmm. few decades since we started to label people as having a disease or a pathology. In fact, you know, I questioned the whole um, concept of addiction in the book um, because other scholars and uh, are looking at the roots of the word addiction and trying to better understand why people who use drugs are labeled um, addicted or having a disorder and challenge that um, and also provide us with some support to see that there's many roots into drug use. There's many roots into just recreational or, you know, regular drug use um, and many roots out, but there's also diversity in how people experience their drug use, even if it's on a regular basis. And they point to the fact that even the DSM, the criteria for uh, diagnosing somebody with opiate use disorder, many of them are social or cultural factors, but they're pathologized. So I'll give you an example. One of the, the third criteria is spending a great deal of time obtaining or using opioids or recovering from its effect. Well, if you're buying on the illegal market and you're poor, you are spending a lot of time because you have to find ways to make money, whether it's through recycling or your poor paying job. Um, another one is using opioids in physically hazardous situations. But as I explained earlier, um, if you're buying a small amount you know, on the street, basically, there's a tendency to do the drugs right then because the longer you have those drugs in your possession, the more likely that you'll be stopped by the police and possibly arrested for possession um, of the drug. So the fact that we don't really look at social and cultural factors is problematic. But the other issue with that is that there's a lot of research that demonstrates that it's our social, the consequences of our drug use is shaped by our social status. And so if we're someone like a poor Keith Richards, I'll use him again. Um, mm. But if we're someone who's wealthy, our heroin use will look quite differently. And the consequences of that heroin use will be quite different than someone who's poor or marginalized or racialized or a woman um, as well. The consequences will be quite different. So it's always asking the question, like, what is a drug? How is our social and cultural factors shaping a person's drug use? 
it really even you could think about it in terms of alcohol. Someone said to me a few weeks ago that yeah. if you've ever had a drink in a bar, you've had a drink in a supervised setting. In a, in a, yes. one of these, this is essentially a supervised consumption site, uh, a bar, because yes. the bar the bar staff is all trained on how to spot intoxication and, and ensure that you don't yes. overdo it. So really, right. alcohol has been regulated to that point. And at the same time, people can overdo it with alcohol. And you have something like Alcoholics Anonymous amongst a whole bunch of organizations. And yeah, you can make criticisms of those organizations here and there based on their methodology. But there's this whole social structure that is intended to help people who are addicted and kind of raise them up. Uh, and there, you're, you're almost, not always, there are certainly stigmas to it. But within those organizations, the idea is to cheer you on as you try to address your reliance on alcohol and slowly get off of it because there are damage, there, there can be damage by not using alcohol in moderation. And does the same thing actually exist for heroin that abuse of the drug can lead to physical long-term problems no. That, no. that need to be addressed? No, like alcohol and tobacco are our most toxic drugs. And so clinical uh, heroin, you know, legal heroin, uh, really the side effects are constipation and if you use too much death, which is the consequences of using too much alcohol or other narcotics and drugs too. Obviously, if, if heroin is provided, you'll be given a dose that isn't harmful to you um, at all. But I should mention, too, because I think this is a fear of some people, too. Our use of alcohol is quite popular in uh, Canada. You know, though we, though we had our temperance movements and people did die from poison alcohol during those periods, right. especially the 14 years in the United States where they had alcohol prohibition. You know, the idea of a poison drug supply, we have to keep that in mind because one of the reasons that we want drugs to be regulated is that we can be assured the quality and quantity of the drug, that there's measures um, put in place so that when I take a tunnel, you know, over-the-counter tunnel, that I'm going to be safe when I take that. Mm -hmm. And so we would question, like, why wouldn't you afford other people who are using drugs the um, same safety measures? But heroin was never that popular. It still isn't that popular. Um, you know, really our favorite drug that was criminalized um, after the late 1960s was cannabis. You know, people preferred cannabis. They weren't like, it's not as if heroin wasn't available on the legal market. It is. It's not that difficult for people to obtain if they want it. But I'm not in any way um, advocating sort of some wholesale use of heroin at all. I'm advocating that we should have every tool in the toolbox in uh, relation to providing supports to people who are using criminalized drugs and for drug substitution programs to include heroin as one of the drugs that they might provide because that drug might be uh, the best for the person of concern. The other thing to keep in mind too is that many people respond to abstinence-based drug treatment and that's great. You know, if they find that their life is more stabilized and that they're happier in their life, if they abstain from a substance, that's wonderful. You know, and I think we should um, acknowledge that. But not everybody 
responds that way to an abstinence-based treatment, and then there's nothing for them. It's basically what harm reduction activists and drug user unions have been trying to express, that we have to have diverse services. And so for that very small minority who would benefit from a drug substitution program, whether it be hydromorphone or heroin or methadone, that that should be provided to people in a non-stigmatizing and discriminatory way. Um, or the idea that uh, Dolph and Van Du have been advocating as well is providing compassion clubs where people can access drugs too, or legal safe drugs. Right. Um, and we've just had a recent example in Vancouver, a Portland Hotel Society physician there uh, prescribed fentanyl to a patient um, where they just go to the pharmacy and they receive their fentanyl, which we know has been illegal fentanyl is the major drug that's um, affecting the poison drug market. But anyway, they prescribe fentanyl, legal fentanyl, to that uh, patient so that they can decide when they want to take the drug. Because often in a drug substitution program, the program creates a framework for when you're taking the drug. So you have to right. come in and get the drug and take it there uh, and you're supervised as well. But it's to say that we could have many different diverse ways to provide people with a legal source and to supervise that um, use as well um, to make sure that it's working and benefiting them. So I think we need to understand that, that nobody's talking about like some huge pool of people all of a sudden starting to use heroin. I don't think that will be the case for most people. And even think about um, if you've had an injury and needed pain control, you know, when you go to the, well, I was just recently a year ago in emergency, and they immediately wanted to prescribe me hydromorphone, which is being used as a drug substitution drug here in Vancouver and elsewhere. But I can't, I can't manage that drug. You know, it really affects me terribly, which when I went down to the drug user union and told them that story, everybody just laughed at me. But it, it just didn't work for me in the same way, uh, definitely. And so, you know, we tried another narcotic. It's to say that we all know that these narcotics, um, there's a potential for dependence. Um, but for most people, that's not the case. It's just a small percentage of people that this might happen. If we had better education about it, I think we wouldn't see that occurring. Um, but we all respond to drugs differently. So for one person, methadone or methadose might work for them. For another person, hydromorphone might be the best solution. For another, it might be legal heroin. For another person, um, and I think that would be the majority of people, remaining abstinence from that substance might work best for them. Or doing what we call now managed use. We have a, a drinking managed use um, or controlled use program in Vancouver and other places. And they're quite beneficial. You know? right, yeah. um, so I think we yeah. should look at the end result of those studies um, and look around the world that are providing heroin-assisted treatment um, and have been ongoingly um, for many decades and to learn from them and not be frightened that somehow we'll have a heroin use epidemic if we provide this kind of service to people. Sure. Yeah, and I think too part of the the pushback that to some of these things that you might see, certainly maybe from people of my generation, right? When I grew up in school, 
we went through things like dare and those prevention programs where if you use drugs, you're going to be poor, you're going to die. You're going to get AIDS. Like it it was really, or go to jail. Like it was all on like the prevention programs were leaning into these stigmatizing ideas around drug use and prevention programs are, I think are probably a good idea, but maybe not structure them the way that now I'm 36 years old and the imagery that was given to me when I was 12 is still kind of in my head about what some of the, right. Sure. So it's, take, it's taken a lot of work for me to read more about these issues, to delve in deeper, to, to get a better sense of what's going on. And that's why books like this, uh, I think are very important to, to a general audience. As you said off the top, anybody from a teenager up until, uh, you know, a senior citizen mm-hmm. can access this book and get a real good sense of the historic basis around a lot of the the drugs, as well as the resistance to them and sort of how these issues play into a contemporary audience and the issues that we still deal with across the country. Yeah. And I should mention that, you know, in our different supervised injection sites and our overdose prevention sites, OPSs that have been set up um, during this uh, overdose crisis, that there's been not one overdose death. And there's not been one overdose death in BC associated with drug substitution programs either. So we know these programs save lives. And if we can't get beyond them, um, I think we could try to understand that if we want people to stay safe, if we want to stop deaths, that these are the types of programs that we need to implement across Canada at the same time that we look at the larger uh, law and the policies that stem from it that criminalize and discriminate against people, um, that our law, it's quite costly (laughs) with tax dollars, but also that it's ineffective in a Mm -hmm. sense. We're still the largest category of uh, convictions are for possession, uh, or at least for offenses are possession, and that has been so historically. Though we saw a steep dive um, after the legalization of cannabis, because over the last, you know, uh, since the late 60s, it was cannabis offenses that that held the majority of uh, drug offenses in Canada. But it was always possession, you know, so this idea that we're told all the time too that, oh, well, we're just arresting high-level traffickers and dealers um, so that we can be safe. That's untrue. You know, it's always been possession, personal possession arrests that make up the larger part of our drug offenses. So we should stay aware of that. But it's to say that we could have a different drug policy. We could start a small step, just decriminalizing personal possession and small amounts of selling for one's own use. We could start there but not in isolation. I think all of the activist groups are are stating that we need to roll out the drug substitution programs, OPSs, but that we also need to expand housing, healthcare, treatment, diverse treatment, culturally sensitive um, treatment as well, spaces for women only, um, services that we need to look at our child custody and uh, social work practices in relation to uh, women who use drugs and have children. We need better education, as you said, about drugs, because many of us did just have sort of the reefer madness kind of (laughs) education provided to us. Um, 
and whether our drug is prescribed through our physician or over-the-counter drugs, we need to know what we're taking and what might be uh, the benefits, but also the uh, what we need to be careful about. And maybe talk more about our relationship with specific drugs as well. Um, early sociologists and uh, talked about this idea of our relationships with drugs, that it wasn't just the drug that was important, the pharmacology of the drug. It was our expectation of that drug, our relationship with that drug, as well the social, cultural, and legal environment that we took that drug um, is just as important as the drug um, and the consequences then of our drug use as well. So I think everybody needs better education about yeah. drugs, not just possibly um, you know, heroin or other narcotics, but about all drugs. For sure. Really, so. Yeah. So again, we would encourage everybody to do that by picking up the book. It is Heroin, an Illustrated History. Susan, if people want a copy of it, where can they go? Where would you yeah. encourage them to go check it out? Uh, if you're watching on YouTube here, check it out. There's the, um, the book right there. I would just right go there. to, um, well, if you're in the Lower Mainland, Massey Books um, has brought in uh, copies of the book and uh, Canadian Drug Policy Coalition and Firmwood Publishing are hosting it. Um, so we brought some books into Massey Bookstore. But if you're not in um, the Lower Mainland, then probably the best way would be just to go to uh, Firmwood Publishing's website and you can order the book online. I think that would be the easiest way. And I think Kobo, if people use their um, iPads and other, you know, yeah. um, you can buy copy of the book online that way. But if you want the paper copy, obviously just go to Firmwood. And uh, check the show notes below or, and go over to Active History if you're on the website. I will link to everything there. Uh, so again, heroin and illustrated history. Uh, Susan Boyd, thank you so much for joining me today. So there you have it. My chat with Susan Boyd, and I thank her for her time. I'd also like to thank our friends at Fernwood and in particular, Nicole Magus for helping set that one up. And as I say, check the show notes for links if you want to pick up a copy of the book and uh, certainly a lot to unpack there. And uh, as we say, a lot of contemporary relevance to this discussion. So hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did, as that'll do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. Do the likes, ratings, comments. All that stuff helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. And do head on over activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are there under the podcast tab, plus all the written material available on the site. As always, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, historyslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. Always love hearing from you folks out there about show ideas. So let me know what you want to hear as we head into the summer. Starting to get warmer and warmer across the country certainly would also like to say that i am in ottawa uh, as i say at the start of every show and uh, i was fortunate enough over the course of the weekend to be uh, completely unscathed uh, with the storm that came through uh, lights flickered a couple times but that was it for me but I, I certainly know that not everybody here in the nation's capital the national capital region or elsewhere through central Ontario were as lucky. So just sending positive thoughts and uh, best wishes to everybody out there who's affected by that storm. 
And uh, massive thanks to those hydro workers who've been working around the clock. When you see some of the images that have come out of this, of just the, the tanglement of power lines, uh, really kind of overwhelming. And when they say that it's almost incomprehensible, some of what they've seen, uh, it, it really gives you a great appreciation of the work that's being done. I know it's not all done yet. You know, I know there are folks still here as I record this on Wednesday evening in the nation's capital that don't have power and certainly the folks out there in Oxbridge, Ontario, it's going to be a long-term process and uh, certainly send our support and our thanks to those hydro workers. So with that, I will say thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back with you again next week, but until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.